We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. We're going to have our scripture reading. Thank you, Ian, for accompanying the accompanist. Thumbs up. And thank you, Christy, for helping us with those songs. I'm glad you've been able to get your fingers on those keys again here today. That's been good. I guess they're all running off to truth trackers. I won't argue with that. Hopefully hear some verses later. From them, we are in Second Chronicles in chapter 26 tonight for our reading. We've uh, looked at the sometimes good, sometimes sordid, and sometimes mixed history of the kings here in the southern kingdom. And we're going to come to another one who was not altogether uh, pure, in the big picture, but he was uh, in the main, at least in the early part of his, of his uh, reign. This is Uzziah, we'll call him, uh, Uzziah, some might say, Uzziah. In verse, or chapter 26, rather, verse number 1, it says, Now all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. Now let's just review for a second, Amaziah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but remember, not with a loyal heart. And we asked ourselves, how is that possible, that somebody could do that? And uh, it's, a, it's a little bit of a trick, but we want to do what's right in the sight of the Lord and with a loyal heart. Verse 2, back to Uzziah, he built Elath and restored it to Judah after the king rested with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. Now, that is a tremendous accomplishment, not quite as long as uh, Queen Elizabeth here, but uh, still quite a long time. It says his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Praise the Lord for that. Now, this Zechariah, we don't believe, is the same as the one who wrote the prophecy by his name. Another one, another prophet by that name. Now, verse 6, Now he went out and made war against the Philistines and broke down the wall of Gath, the wall of Jabna, and the wall of Ashdod, and he built cities around Ashdod and among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines, against the Arabians who lived in Gerbaal, and against the Munites. Also, the Ammonites brought tribute to Uzziah. His fame spread as far as the entrance of Egypt, for he became exceedingly strong. And Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, at the valley gate, and at the corner buttress of the wall. Then he fortified them. And he built towers in the desert. He dug many wells, for he had much livestock, both in the lowlands and in the plains. He also had farmers and vine dressers in the mountains and in Carmel, for he loved the soil." very interesting that you have a man who is a king, and yet he loves the earth. He loves the things that the God has made and, and uh, how he can grow things and all of that. Verse 11, moreover, Uzziah had an army of fighting men who went out to war by companies. According to the numbers 
uh, on their role as prepared by Jeiel the scribe and Maasai the officer under the hand of Hananiah, one of the king's captains. The total number of chief officers of the mighty men of valor was 2,600. And under their authority was an army of 307,500 that made war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. Then Uzziah prepared for them, for the entire army, shields, spears, helmets, body armor, bows, and slings to cast stones. And he made devices in Jerusalem invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and large stones. So his fame spread far and wide, for he was marvelously helped till he became strong. So he was marvelously helped by what or by whom? Well, that has to be God. Until he became strong, that is, and he became strong in his pride, and uh, he then did not follow uh, the Lord, and he did not seek the Lord, as it says in verse number 5. That was the source of his strength. So if, um, if Samson's hair was the source of his strength, which wasn't really the ultimate source, right? But uh, this is really the source, the one, one when they seek after God. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him were eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Now why was that? Because God said so. That's the bottom line. God said so. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor before the Lord God. Then Uzziah became furious, and he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord, beside the incense altar. And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him, and there on his forehead he was leprous. So they thrust him out of that place. Indeed, he also hurried to get out because the Lord had struck him. King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah from first to last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, wrote. So Uzziah rested with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the field of burial which belongs to the king's, For they said, he's a leper. Then Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. Oh, I wish that wasn't the case, that he soiled things up at the end. Yes, that's right. Isaiah, Isaiah, the son of Amos, is mentioned here. And uh, he's the one who chronicled the acts of this king. And that was in Acts, in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord on that throne. Yeah, I saw the Lord exalted there. And that was a year of trouble and difficulty for them because their king had died. But of course, uh, they had somebody else, his son Jotham, to to, uh, take up the power vacuum. And yet uh, it was uh, a very difficult time because this man had not followed the Lord with his whole heart. Anything else? All right, well, um, we've had a lot of bad news today. Genesis 4 wasn't so good, and now <laughs> Matthew chapter 23 isn't so good either. So I hope, I hope you won't walk away from the meetings today as depressed as you might, as you might think you could be. 
uh, with the content of these uh, sections of Scripture, but it's Matthew chapter 23, Matthew and chapter 23 tonight, and we uh, looked at the first 12 verses of this on Wednesday already and saw that uh, the Lord was um, speaking against the, uh, the, the scribes and the Pharisees or began to actually telling the people that they needed to listen to what they taught if they taught from the seed of Moses, but then criticizing them for their uh, malbehavior, uh, wanting attention and uh, not exercising humility at all, wanting titles like rabbi, father, teacher, and uh, the Lord uh, reiterates again, once again, that the greatest among us will be those who serve. If you want to achieve greatness in the sight of God, and not because you want to do that and, and kind of go through the back door and get yourself acclaim, but if you want that renown to God and in His economy, you go about serving other people. You serve your wife, you serve your children, you serve your parents, you serve your husband, you serve in your church, you serve in your community, and just let God take care of the rest. You serve, and God will take care of that. He who humbles himself will be exalted, the Bible is very clear. And of course, the main first form of humbling ourselves is to acknowledge that we are servants of God, isn't it? To, by faith, believe, by trust in Him, to uh, walk in his ways and to, for him to wash us from our sins, which we desperately need. We continue uh, from last time, and I'm, I'm kind of, the, there's two segments to the notes. These are now available on the website such as they are. The end of them is not completed yet. You'll see that, but that'll be updated when I finish the study of Matthew 23. Um, and uh, so you have that there. The Lord in this chapter is foreclosing the offer of the kingdom to Israel. Behold, uh, the, the, the uh, prophet John the Baptist, who was a prophet really, said, there's one coming, and uh, behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent because of that. And that was the kind of what marked the early part of Jesus' ministry, uh, offering the kingdom. But the people and the nation's leaders began to reject it. By chapter 12, it's become quite clear that's the case. And now he's totally, the Lord is totally foreclosing the offer of the kingdom by pronouncing eight woes on the people. This is like Old Testament prophets right here, if you think of it. If you've read the prophets lately, read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, see some of the woes that are pronounced, the minor prophets. Uh, This is prophetic in that um, kind of pure sense, if you will. He's showing that judgment is impending. And if you were to ask the question to me, when did that judgment occur? Then I would answer this way. I would say, well, uh, in this, during this week, it didn't come immediately to pass. They actually got their way with him. They killed Jesus. They put him in the tomb. But he rose again from the dead, thus sealing their judgment and the judgment of the evil one. By the way, that's connected back to Genesis 3.15. He crushed the head of the serpent. Even though in dying for our sins, the serpent did get a bite out of his heel. I say bite, you know what I mean. He he struck his heel. Uh, The judgment didn't come immediately, but I think the judgment began just about not quite two months later when the Lord gave the gift of tongues to the disciples so that they could preach the gospel to the nations all around. 
and that gift is not a gift of good things to come. It is a sign of judgment. Remember 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14 teach that. Uh, In fact, I think it's in chapter 14, it specifically says that, that tongues are not for believers but for unbelievers, and tongues are a sign of judgment. And they were that in in, uh, Isaiah. You see that in a couple of other places as well. With people of a strange tongue and unknown language, I will speak to this people. Those were like the Assyrians and the Babylonians coming in to judge them. So the judgment began then as God shelved the nation of Israel, put them to the side, and began to work most um, uh, closely with the Gentiles, bringing the church to the nations of the world. And then in A.D. 70, he sent the nations again into Jerusalem and destroyed it, destroyed the temple. There is no more, since then, there's been no more temple, no more sacrificial system. And uh, these woes have indeed come upon them and, uh, and really do continue still for disobedience to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They remain in a state of disbelief, unbelief, and a state of judgment by God, which really is a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 28, the second three quarters of that chapter that talk about the woes or the curses for disobedience. And so they still have those today. No offense to our Jewish friends, please. If you want to talk about that with me, if you're listening, I'd love to do that. But the fact of the matter is that we don't see prosperity in the operation of the covenant in Israel because the people had disobeyed God. The text here is directed immediately at the nation of Israel in this historical context, but then I ask the question of you, is it applicable to us today? Well, you know probably what my answer is going to be since you all have been here for a while. Scripture is always applicable. It's always relevant uh, to modern-day readers somehow, some way. It's our job to read and think and see exactly how it can legitimately apply to us. In this case, the text mentions things that are very displeasing to God, characteristics of the scribes and the Pharisees and uh, their hypocrisy and their sin. And those characteristics are still as displeasing today as they were back then. So if any of those characteristics are lodged in our hearts, then we must remove them, confess them, repent of them, and ask the Lord to cleanse us from them. So the structure of the passage was to uh, warn the people uh, how they should conduct themselves and how they should not conduct themselves. That's verses 1 to 12. Then directly to the Pharisees, verses 13 to 36. And then a wider statement to the nation of Israel and really to the city of Jerusalem uh, on God's uh, lamentation over the city. But our focus tonight is going to be the woes of judgment pronounced against the Pharisees. And there are eight of them, and the first one is in verse 13. And several of them just take one verse, some of them take a grouping of verses, and we'll just walk through them one by one here and see what they are all about until we exhaust our time for the evening. Woe number one is in chapter 23 and verse number 13. It says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. So the first woe is they closed the door of the kingdom of God. 
They closed the door of the kingdom of God. Once again, I know the text says kingdom of heaven. I didn't misread that. I understand, as you know, that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are synonyms, exact, precise synonyms. Each woe, except for the number four woe, starts with the same phrase, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, the word woe, I didn't do any kind of in-depth study on this this time. We've done it before, but it comes from a word that sounds like woe. <laughs> okay, it's like one of these words that's almost like a universal word. Like if some calamity happens and you listen to a person in 20 different languages, you know, how they respond, you'd probably hear something like, you know, oh, or, you know, woe, or oh, or you know, stuff like that. Of course, there's all kinds of other variations, but that's what this is. It's a woe. We see this in the Old Testament as well. It's a, it's a statement of impending judgment. A heavy burden is being mentioned. The religious leaders are the target of the Lord's teaching here, and their hypocrisy is the reason. Probably their hypocrisy is the most well-known feature, isn't it? You would say, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. One of the reasons is because of this chapter. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 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 hypocrites. What is that? A hypocrite is an actor, a pretender, a dissembler in older English, or a role player. They are frauds, fakes, imposters. They pretend to have a form of righteousness But it is not from God, it's not pleasing to God, rather it is sinful. Okay, now this is the kind of acting that is under, it's it's not explicit acting, okay? This isn't play acting like on a theater stage or acting in a television or movie program where everybody knows it's acting and it's pretend and it's sort of fake and uh, all of that, but this is, pretending to be real and acting. The short statement of the reason for judgment here is that they shut the doors of the kingdom of heaven so that people cannot enter it. Have you ever thought about how somebody could do that? How can somebody close the doors of the kingdom of heaven? I mean, isn't it the case if God wants somebody to be in, they're going to be in? Well, yes, that's true. But... There is a sense in which people, by something that they do, can close that door and make it more difficult for folks to find their way into that kingdom. In the church, that should be the farthest thing from reality. In other words, if you go to a decent church, that should be the easiest place. It should be most painfully obvious, and sometimes, I mean, I hope it is painfully obvious, like, They told us how to get into the kingdom before. Now they're doing it again. They're doing it in a different way. Yeah, that's right, because we want to make sure that everybody knows the ways of God. These people closed the door in two ways. Number one, it says that, it says, you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves. Look, if you're not on the way yourself, how can you guide somebody else to the way? (laughs) If you're on the broad way to destruction, 
it's highly unlikely you're going to be pointing people to the narrow way that leads to life over there. And they did not repent. They refused to repent at the message of King Jesus. They did not believe his forerunner, John the Baptist. I mean, if we read again the book of Matthew from beginning to end, you'll see that. He called them a brood of vipers. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? And uh, they didn't repent. Jesus said they didn't believe in John the Baptist's message. You know, if, if his authority was from heaven, why didn't you believe him? They knew that. They knew that that would be the case if they answered his question about authority uh, that way. They had their own system of self-righteousness that they thought would sweep them into the presence of God. I mean, they were like that arrogant former mayor that I mentioned before in New York who said, I'm a breeze for heaven. I mean, I'm just going to be, I'm going to be, the doors are going to be flung open for me. Unbelievable the kind of arrogance that that represents. Romans chapter 10 and verse number 3 talks about this a little bit. It says, regarding the kindred of Paul, the nation of Israel, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Verse 3 of chapter 10 in Romans, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So, and that's the problem. When people don't want to submit to God to receive his righteousness, I can do it myself, mama. You know, uh, there's a, a, a thing that happened, a young boy known to some in our church who uh, was in a car accident and he, uh, the car flipped over and he was in a seat belt, he and the one driving, and uh, he was just a young boy at the time and he uh, told the driver, which was another relative, he said, I, uh, I'll save myself. And he unbuckled his seat belt and he got out of the car. I'll save myself. <laughs> well... That's not how it works in salvation. You don't save yourself. You can't save yourself. Uh, and I'm uh, glad that he was, uh, had his wits about him enough to be able to unbuckle the seat belt and fall out of the seat and crawl out of the car and get out of there. But, you know, these Pharisees thought that they're they going to achieve their own righteousness. They don't have to submit to anybody. Certainly not Jesus. They didn't want to do that. The test for you is, are you willing to submit to someone else in your life? And if you are, you're making progress against your sin nature. If you're not, then you're showing that you're a stubborn mule. And the Lord talks about people like that, stiff-necked people. They'll suddenly be broken. Why, you know, somebody in material science, explain how that is, some of you engineers, you know. Something that's very hard, stiff, and brittle. Just the right amount of force on that in the right way, snap, it's done. But if it's got some kind of malleability, flexibility, it can kind of flex under the strain a little bit. It can submit itself. You know, somebody has said there's, there's the stiff neck of the person who's focused on I. 
But if their neck is able to bend down, it can become a C for Christ. That's what we need, is that kind of submission to the righteousness of God. Secondly, the scribes and the Pharisees disallow other people from going into heaven, into the kingdom. They do this by not teaching the right way of repentant faith. They didn't repent themselves, and they didn't teach others to do that. They teach a works-based righteousness. And listen, this is why we evangelize people in other religious groups. Some have asked, why do evangelicals concern themselves with Catholics? They're fine. Well, that shows a total lack of discernment, doctrinal discernment. They are not fine because that system teaches a works righteousness, which is the diametric opposite of the way of God. We don't be, you know, uh, what's the word, uh, harsh about it or difficult about it or something, but it just is the truth. You know, you have all these cults that, that teach Jesus is not deity, uh, he's not the part of the Trinity, he didn't die sufficiently for your sins and stuff like this, and it's like, What's the point of being a Christian if Christ is not the answer, if he's not everything, as the Scripture teaches us? So this is exactly, uh, these guys are teaching exactly the opposite of how one enters the kingdom. And so they wanted people to follow themselves, follow the Pharisees, not to trust in God, certainly not to trust in Christ. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 and verse number 12. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. And you know, uh, if you remember back, you know, what is that, 12 chapters ago now, it's been a little while, but my interpretation of that verse is not a positive one. It's not that strong people grab a hold of that kingdom and hang on to it for themselves. It's that the violent people are taking the kingdom away from the people of Israel. They are holding them back from it. They're rejecting the Messiah. They don't want him. And they are thus closing the door. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And the false teachers are taking it away from those who would welcome it if they heard properly about it. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ or the word of God. So if you hide the true word of God, you shut up the door of faith. Certainly, if God wants a person, he will see to it that they get the word through another means. God will bypass the false teachers that are victimizing their students. But the point here is that they were, they were victimizing their students. They were telling these masses of people. I mean, can you imagine the, for ages, churches teaching their people, you've got to buy indulgences, you've got to do the sacraments to get saved, all these works, and, and downplaying the sufficiency of the work of Christ. Closing the door for thousands and millions of souls to the kingdom of heaven. If there is any way that the evil one can obscure visibility to the door that leads to life, he will do it, won't he? Christ is the door, but the door is narrow. And so if you can kind of, you know, put some prop trees in front of the door and disguise it a little bit to somebody's eyes and help them not to see it, you know, uh, you know, look over there. Don't look over there. Look over here. Distract them. Get them thinking about other things. He will take and use fake religious leaders, legalism, pride, self-righteousness. He'll use peer pressure. 
You know that. Nobody's following the Lord these days. They write, I just read an article, uh, you know, Christianity is, is being devastated. I mean, in our country, it's just on the downswing terribly young, among the younger generation. We've got to turn that around, friends. We've got a job to do. But the, the evil one will use distractions, he'll use entertainment, he'll use worldly work and pleasures, education, and anything else he can to obscure the way of salvation. You see people running around in life distracted by every, every, everything. You know, they, they're school, and then they get married, and then they have kids, and then they're running all over creation with them, and they get distracted by all of that, and they're into the politics and everything else and think they're going to solve the world's problems, and before you know it, they're 70 or 80 years old, and they've whiled their whole life away, not re- recognizing the truth. The judgment in this woe is built into the crime. They are stubborn about the way of God, therefore they do not enter the kingdom of God. They remain in the kingdom of darkness, that is the kingdom of Satan. That's the judgment. That's judgment enough. There's need, no, no more judgment needs to be given. If people remain in the kingdom of Satan, in the kingdom of darkness, they love darkness rather than light, well, that's the judgment. You know, sometimes people say of our country, well, God's going to judge us. No, he already is. He's already handed us over to a reprobate mind, to immorality, to idolatry, to all of that stuff that's mentioned in Romans chapter 1. And every time he gives us bad leaders, those are the leaders that on balance we deserve because of who we are. Not the ones we as Christians want, but the ones that we deserve. Just remember that when you're voting and you're thinking about the ones that God has given to us. That's woe number one. Woe number two, verse 14, great condemnation. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive the greater condemnation. Now, if you have a, maybe an ESV or an NIV, you're going to be lost because you're going to say, Where did pastor get verse 14? Verse 14 does not appear in those translations. It's maybe bracketed or just absent altogether. And um, the explanation is that certain older Greek manuscripts from two manuscript families, the Western and Alexandrian, I think, um, not the Byzantine family, but those two other families, they do not have verse uh, 14 in them. However, Mark uh, 1240 does have it, and uh, somebody maybe can look up the Luke version of that. I didn't write that down in my notes, but it's there somewhere. But Mark, um, Mark 12, uh, 40 says, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. So um, maybe your Bible has a cross-reference there to the Luke passage. But anyway, we know that it's there. We know the Lord said it. And sometimes it's placed... Before verse 13 in the Matthew manuscripts, sometimes after, most of the time here, and that's why we have it here in the New King James and in the King James Version. There's no reason for us to fret about this. There are some questions like this in the New Testament textual transmission. I'm sure if I assigned you to sit down and write out a copy of the New Testament, Jackson, by hand, you would probably make a mistake or two as well. 
maybe. I know you're good, but maybe, you know, a little mistake here or there. And uh, that is the sort of thing that happened when they were copying out these massively long manuscripts. You know, thank the Lord for Xerox machines and computers today, right? <laughs> but they didn't have that back in those days, so they had to copy by hand. So the bottom line is we know that the Lord said these words. It's recorded, as I say, in Mark and also Luke and uh, put here and may, in fact, be original to here. It certainly happened at this, uh, in this kind of context. And so I'm going to treat it just as if it's here because um, it is in the other. So the Bible says here, the Lord actually is recording the Lord saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you devour widows' houses. Now this make me very, very keen to be careful not to uh, mistreat a widow in her finances. And this is what was kind of going on here. They were taking financial advantage of the widows. 180 degrees out of phase with God's heart for widows, uh, widows and, and orphans. In Malachi chapter 3, the Lord uh, says, I'm to get back there. Malachi chapter 3 and verse number uh, 5. It says, and I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans. True and undefiled religion, remember what that is, James 1.27, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. Uh, Psalm 68, uh, verse number 4. Psalm 68 and verse 4. You know, there's so many treasures in the Psalms and the Proverbs, it's hard to keep them all in mind because there's so much there. But, you know, you run, run into these little nuggets again when you read through it, and it's good. Psalm 68, 4. Sing to God, sing praises to His name. Extol Him who rides on the clouds by His name, Yah, and rejoice before Him. A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. You have other references to this in Isaiah chapter 10, verse number 2. You have one in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 3, a whole chapter actually there about the church's treatment of widows. Um, it says in Isaiah 10, 1 and 2, Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune, which they have prescribed to rob the needy of justice and to take what is right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey and that they may rob the fatherless. Well, can I say it this way? Not much gets God's ire up more than mistreating widows and orphans. That is evil. And uh, the Lord pronounces a woe here on the Pharisees and the scribes, hypocrites, because they devoured widows' houses. What would happen probably is that a widow would trust a scribe or a Pharisee who is significant in, in ministering in their family's life, like you have a pastor who you trust uh, and, or Christians that you trust, and uh, he would, uh, the widow would trust them to help manage the estate once the husband died, as often you know, then, even now, more often the men die first and, and the wives are left. Perhaps she didn't understand financial matters very well and was overwhelmed at the responsibility. 
of all of that. So the religious leader could take advantage of her or maybe appropriate somehow for himself the property. Say, hey, just give it as a donation to the temple or donation to me. It'll help the ministry. Um, and, and it sounds you know, all spiritual and everything, but then he's profiting from it on the side uh, behind the scenes. And that would mean that the family was left with little and the dead husband who had probably made provision for his wife before he died, all of the accumulated wealth that he had to help her when he was gone, all of that was stolen or a big portion of it. So that was the devouring of widows' houses. And you remember they did other things like, you know, say to their parents, well, if you could benefit from me, I've just declared that to be korban, meaning a gift to God. It's uh, allocated to the temple now, and, uh, you know, they kind of maybe launder it through there somehow so that they could still get benefit from it, and, uh, but lock the money up so that they couldn't have to help their, wouldn't have to help their parents in their old age. And so they make null and void the commandment of God. Well, they also, according to Jesus here, and for a pretense, make long prayers. They were not genuinely speaking with God. They were speaking with themselves. Remember that guy in Luke 18 who goes up to the temple, of the, 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 uh, the scribe or the Pharisee, and then you have the uh, tax collector. And it says he went up and he prayed thus with himself. You know, that prayer didn't go past the ceiling, so to speak. It was just to himself in his own mind. And, and when it says that it's for a, for a pretense or under pretense, they're trying to make themselves look like they're very genuine and loving toward God and are on good speaking terms with him and can offer these eloquent, flowery, long prayers. And, you know, sometimes the best prayers are the shortest prayers, the simplest prayers, the one that gives one or two or three requests or just says, God, help me, and leaves it at that. The true intended audience of the Pharisees' prayer, the true intended audience was not God. It was man, so that he would be puffed up. Oh, isn't he so eloquent? What an orator. He gives such beautiful prayers. No, that's not what we're supposed to be about. So that's second woe. Third woe, yes, yes. Uh huh. Sorry, I had to pick up my pen. That was you say that was Luke. Yeah. Forty-seven it says the same thing as Mark. Yeah. So it's a parallel passage as often in the Gospels. All right. Woe number three. Not only were they closing the door of the kingdom, but they were making sons of hell. Verse fifteen is another single verse. Woe, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Man, this is discouraging, isn't it? The religious leaders thought well of themselves that they were involved in a kind of missions work where they would go to faraway places and make disciples. Now, when it says they were making Disciples are making proselytes. That's what they were making, was proselytes to the Jewish faith. Uh, they were not doing Christian missions work or under the guise of Christian missions work because that mission work wasn't existing yet. didn't exist yet because it didn't exist until Matthew 28. We're only in chapter 23. 
So at, after the Lord rose from the dead, then he initiated the Great Commission and sent his disciples on it to the nations of the, of the earth. So these guys weren't doing really missions work as we know it, but they were going out and making proselytes, trying to get people to believe like they do, thinking, oh, we're doing God's work here. But sadly, once they converted the Gentile, that's what it was, taking a Gentile and turning him into a proselyte to uh, Judaism, and they taught him or her all of their legalistic doctrine. They made him worse off than he was before. They succeeded only in putting the person onto the fast track to eternal punishment like they themselves were. You know, sometimes if, if I were to choose, if I had to choose, would I like the Jehovah's Witnesses going down the street to visit every door and give some word from the Bible and their teachings to everybody on the street and even convince some people? Or would I like them to just leave and leave us alone? I would pick the latter. It would be better for people if they were just left alone in that context of false teaching. And you might say, well, they, they don't have any connection then to the Word of God, and they might get something. Well, they might get something, but what do they get? It's the wrong thing. It misleads them. It, it can lead them into a life of 10, 20, 30, 40 years or forever being confused in their mind and uh, all turned around if not completely opposed to the truth. I mean, we have seemingly very well-meaning people, even at uh, one couple at the American house. They kind of look down on us because we're, you know, we don't quite get it. We're not Jehovah's Witnesses, and they know better. And, you know, it's kind of like, well, honey, you know, this is really how it is. And it's discouraging because they're there busily making people think that they can get to heaven by their works. And they cannot. The judgment is, uh, well, so what I'm saying is if you're going to teach somebody and you're putting them on a, a uh, you know, kind of a conveyor belt to eternal punishment, it would be better to keep off the conveyor belt. Just sit there in unbelief for a while and until somebody else comes along that has the gospel. The judgment of this woe is obvious. They're worthy of punishment for misleading people away from the grace of God into a false religion. This is among the worst of offenses that somebody could do. If it's true that God created the world, and if it's true that... Jesus came to the earth, and if it's true that he died for our sins and rose again, and it all is true, and you tell somebody the opposite of those truths, you tell somebody, no, salvation is not by grace through faith alone, it's through this other means, then you are doing something that, stop and think with me now, is that better or worse than what Cain did to Abel? Is misleading somebody and sending them on their way to hell better or worse than physical murder? It's worse. It's worse because you're sending them to an eternity apart from God. You're not just cutting their life short now. If, they're a, if it's a Christian person, well, like a Christian person, a believing person like Abel, well, he's in the presence of God immediately after he was smote down by his brother Cain. But if you're lost and somebody pulls the wool over your eyes and makes you think you're doing the right thing, you're lost forever. That's a worse offense. It consigns somebody for eternity.
apart from the grace of God, it is capital terrible, capital T-E-R-R-I-B-L-E. It's awful. So very bad, and we ought to look at it that way with that kind of urgency. Well, let me see what I have here. We have a long bit of information on woe number four. It's a little different than the others. We'll end with this one tonight. It starts with this phrase in verse number 16. It goes through 22. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple it is nothing. Whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it. And you're familiar with this. I'm sure you've all read it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And and they say, whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift on the altar? I'm sorry, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift. Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. What was happening here is, well, let me say this. Um, First, he says, woe to you blind guides. This is heavily ironic because a guide cannot be blind. A guide cannot be blind. He must have all of his senses and wits about him to guide other people. The person guided might be blind, but not the guide. Not the guide. Note that we are speaking of the metaphorical blindness of spiritual darkness here, not a lack of eyesight. A physically blind person can be a perfect guide to spiritual truth. Yes, I I speak from time to time, with a fellow named Bob. Bob, if you're listening, hi. Uh, His uh, radio call sign, WD8PIC. He's in Sylvania, Ohio, and I speak to him on the radio directly. And uh, we've spoken on the telephone, I think, one time. He's blind, and somebody helped him set up his radio station so that he can speak and uh, and go back and forth with people in in the uh, amateur radio bands. And uh, he's a Christian fellow and a very keen Christian fellow, blind. But he would be a very good spiritual guide for somebody who did not know anything about the things of God. But, you know, can you imagine a tour guide who's blind? (laughs) Or, you know, if you're blind in spiritual things, how are you going to show people where to go? You don't know where you're going yourself. The blind leads the blind. What will happen to them, the Lord says? Remember? They'll both fall into the ditch. Yeah. It doesn't take much. You're walking down the center of the road, and pretty soon you're veering off and veering off and down into the drink you go on the side of the road. Uh, So spiritual blindness. A person who is dead in sin cannot tell anyone anything of use about how to be saved. Now, I say that knowing that somebody's going to say, yeah, but there's exceptions. Like there used to be, and there there still probably are, pastors today who are unsaved people, and they read the Bible, and people hear the Bible, and they get saved. Well, they didn't get it from the blind pastor. They got it from the Word of God. So God, again, circumvents the blindness of the person. But I think that's kind of making the point anyway. These Pharisees and scribes were blind to their own sinfulness, John 9.40, in the um, account of a blind man, we read about that. 
and yet they thought of themselves as uh, equipped to help others. Romans chapter 2, verse number 17, the scripture says, Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having a form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? They didn't understand that because they were blind, blind guides to the people. So the problem the Lord then calls out here, which is a manifestation of their blindness, is the making of deceptive oaths. Basically, what this is, is they were lying. And what they would do is they'd make a promise, say, I promise by the gold of the temple. And that would be binding. But if they said, I promise by the temple, it was like they had their fingers crossed. You know that? They faked it. They were lying. But they didn't actually, you know, put their crossed fingers behind their back to show their audience behind them that they were actually lying. They didn't. They just lied. How they rationalized this is not clear to me. It's when you um, try to explain uh, people who are blind in their in their behavior, you can't. If and this is an interesting thing, if you find a situation in which you cannot explain, come up with with a logical you know, biblical explanation for somebody's behavior, there is a high likelihood that they are living in sin. And they ought to be, as you, if you're the observer, very troubled by this. Because there's, there's no good reason for this kind of sin. So if you're digging, digging, digging to try to find it and you're not able to find it, you might as well just say, well, it doesn't make sense because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because it's not biblical. It doesn't make sense because it's flat out wrong. And so trying to find the rationalization here, it's, it's a fool's errand. You're not going to be able to figure it out. They made it up. Just like, where did crossing your fingers come from? Okay, somebody can go to Google and say, where did crossing my, your fingers come from and making, you know, lying. And somebody will say, well, it was in some book or something, you know, thousands of years ago and blah, blah, blah. And you'll find some explanation. But why that? Why does doing that make it okay to say a lie? It's it's nonsense. Uh, The point was that you know they made these kind of oaths based on fine little details. You know, if you swore by the gold of the temple, then boy, you really got to keep it. Otherwise, you're going to be displeasing to God. Another variation was that they would swear by the altar, and it would mean nothing. But if they swore by the gift on the altar, then that oath would be binding. And this kind of deception gave them some advantage somehow or it got them out of having to keep a promise. Um, Where do you find anything like this in the law of Moses? You don't. What about Ecclesiastes? It says you hasten to keep your vows. Don't, Don't make them and then not keep them. They did not have God in their thinking whatsoever. They were thinking on the human level about what they could get away with, how they could deceive others, but 
You can't deceive God because he sees the fingers crossed in your mind. He sees the lie that you're making, just like it's published on a big screen TV in front of you and the audience that you're lying to. The fact that they did not understand this shows that they were morally blind. Now, the Lord reserves a very strong title for them. In verse 17, he says, fools, fools and blind. A fool is one who does not fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise, uh, the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And uh, we see it several times in the Proverbs. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool is stupid. That's what we might say. That's stupid. And, and the two invariably go together, fools and blind or fools and stupid, because those who do not fear God say and do the dumbest things when looked at from a heavenly perspective. They had it entirely backwards. For one thing, they had it backwards because it wasn't the gold on the temple that was important. If anything, the temple was more important than the gold because the gold was made sanctified by its presence upon the temple. That's what made it different gold than the gold that they had in their pocket in a coin. Okay, So it wasn't more important because it was gold. Uh, The temple was more important dwelling place of God and the place where he was to be worshipped. The altar, too, was what sanctified the gift, not the other way around. So you couldn't swear by the lesser thing and not by the greater thing. But the Lord undercut their whole system by telling them that if you swear by the gold of the temple or the gift on the altar, you are making an oath ultimately based on all of it, the altar, the temple, the God of the temple, the God of heaven, the God of the altar, If you make an oath based on heaven, you're promising before God Almighty that you will do what you say. And so because of this, the Lord uh, solved the whole problem by teaching us that we should not make oaths at all. Just say what you mean and mean what you say. And if you say what you meant and meant what you said, and then you come into a situation where you can't keep your promise because of some unforeseen event or some incapacity that you have as a, as a finite human, then you apologize to the people that you uh, wronged and you make that right somehow. Make it up, do it as whatever it was at a different time or, or whatever, but you don't make an oath at all. Just mean yes when you say yes and no when you say no. Matthew 5, to 37 teaches us that, and that is the end of that, okay? We need to... Uh, close up shop today, wrap it up for the night. We have four more woes to go. We'll begin to talk about those, Lord willing, on Wednesday. And uh, hopefully none of these things are a part of our lives, that we'll be able to uh, see that and be thankful to God, not because we compare ourselves with these people, because they're not really good comparison points, but that we'll compare ourselves with what the Lord, how the Lord wants us to conduct ourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the night tonight that you've given us to look at the word for a few minutes. I pray that each has been edified in some manner tonight, and uh, certainly we've given ourselves to thinking about your word, which is itself profitable. Thank you for filling our minds with it. Guide us this evening. Bless each one of these people who are here, and uh, we give you thanks for allowing us to be here. In Jesus' name, amen.